0: Progressive Rugby League
1: Hello, first part of 2021. Nice to be back. Hope you're doing okay. Well, if 2020 taught us anything, it's that everyone's an expert. How good, a world chock full of experts. Except, it should be noted, most of us are, well, not experts. But we're not easily convinced. Yes, I see your 35 years in your chosen field, doctor, but I've read two blog posts and watched 12 consecutive hours of cable news. I rest my case. The truth is, and I know I'm preaching to the converted here, ladies and gentlemen, you don't know what you don't know. And I, John O'Duncan, often have to be reminded of this. The topic of UK Rugby League is a prime example. When we first started this pod in 2018, I thought I knew more than enough about the game in the UK. Something, something Northern Union, something, something Maca- really. something, something Super League. I mean, what more was there to know? Alas, the more we've learned from our fabulous listeners and super guests, the more we've realised there is to learn. You don't know what you don't know. And so today, the education continues. Today we thought we'd get the perspective from someone with a passion for the game but who is perhaps outside the rugby league tent somewhat, so we can get a clearer understanding of what actually is the status of rugby league in the UK, and more importantly, why. Jonathan Liu is a sports columnist for The Guardian. Jonathan has covered a plethora of sports in his career to date, including the grand old game of rugby league, and he's covered them pretty well too, winning a slew of awards including the 2019 Sports Journalist Association's Columnist of the Year. Anyone who has read Jonathan's work, and millions have, know that when you enter one of his columns, whatever sport, you'll be treated to a lovely serving of insight, subtlety, and humor. So who better to help us traverse the UK sporting landscape and find rugby league's place in it? Jonathan Liu, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. That was quite an introduction, which I—I I, I suspect I'm going to fail to live up to quite resoundingly. But very much appreciate
1: it. Well, you know, we set the expectations high, and I fail spectacularly every time, so it's uh, part of the course. But thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. First of all, how is London lockdown life treating you? In what has been a tricky time for you guys?
0: Yeah. Well, we're in we're in lockdown three. I think I mean, most of us have lost count by now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's tough for everyone, really. We're all kind of. Being told to stay at home, although you know a few people are still have, you know having to go go out to work and and you know we just we just left the EU and things are pretty uh, things are pretty downbeat here here yeah. on Brexit plague island, um, <laughs> but you know you know there's pretty there's food in the fridge for most of us and, and there's uh, there's sport on the telly so mm. I can't complain too much.
1: Fair enough. Now, how has life been different for a sports correspondent like yourself during COVID? What what have you found to have lost or gained? from the different working environment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot over the last, sort of, what is it,
0: 10, 11 months. I I guess there's two levels to it. There's, you know, professionally speaking, not going to sports as much. We we still attend football, like soccer games Mm. occasionally. Not doing as much sport as we used to has been, you know, a big professional change. Not having the atmosphere, not having the kind of, you know, the buzz of the crowd. And, you know, essentially having to report on these incredibly weird, sterile occasions, that a, has been a big change and obviously having to do a lot more stuff off the TV, which I think is the, the sort of thing that that might become semi-permanent once the, once the fog lifts. Yeah. But the other part of it is kind of, it's, it's almost sort of existential and this is certainly the case in the first few weeks of the pandemic when it was consuming pretty much everything, yeah. every part of our lives. In this kind of new scary world, what is the role of sport? You know, and by extension, what is the role of of a sports writer, and what, what is the role of me? Mm. That's definitely part of it. Like, what is it, It's definitely forced us to consider what this essentially trivial pursuit, what purpose it serves in in a, in a broader context, and, and to the wider world. And, and I think you know, different people have come up with different answers to that. But that's the main challenge of it: trying to make sport relevant in a in a world where actually sport has been forced to know its place.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that. So, obviously, it's a massive cliche, but twenty twenty was such a wild year that even seemingly unstoppable sports behemoths like the Premier League were brought to a shuddering halt. So, yeah, what did this unique year? How did it provide you with clarity on the role of professional sport in, in our society? What what is the role? Well,
0: I mean, there was a lot of you know a lot of kind of highfalutin talk about how sport plays a role in kind of national morale. In the health of a nation, uh, the mental health of a nation uh, is one one line. Um, some, some sports administrator told me, "Sport is crucial to the mental health of a nation." But I suppose the true order of things is only really becomes apparent when choices have to be made between what is allowed to resume or continue and what is not, and. The Premier League footballers, as you mentioned, that I think you know it was it was off for two months, and and they started it basically as soon as they possibly could, and, and even though there have been lots lots of pressure, uh, lots of calls in the UK for the Premier League to be paused or halted, whether they've had a lot of COVID tests amongst players, that has carried on. Mm.
2: The
0: Champions League that went on pretty much as normal. The Indian Premier League cricket that went—I mean, they mm. held that in the UAE, but they they played a full schedule, whereas my local tennis court is shut my local five-a-side football uh, yeah I've, I've been playing that for, uh, for months now mm. people are allowed to go out for one run a day you know exercise classes are, are canceled uh, so so you kind of see where the priorities of those who administer and, and legislate sport you, you kind of see where the priorities are and, and obviously they're, they're commercially driven mm. and that, that's i guess the answer to your question the role of sport is to generate revenue for people while also putting on a kind of the, an entertainment face mm. and talking about the benefits of, you know, sport to the mental health of the nation mm. whilst lining their pockets. I think that, that's, that's probably how I'd sum it up.
1: Yeah. Jonathan, I guess we should get to the topic at hand and that's rugby league football. Now, you grew up in the, the south of England or the southern half of England. I'd love you to recount, if you could, particularly for our Australian listeners, your experience with rugby league growing up.
0: Well, I suppose it was, it was extremely restricted I I'm 35 years old now, and I've still never played. I mean, I never played rugby league. I Never got close to playing rugby league. I've never, I've never done a play the ball. So, so and, and you know, I grew up in in West London, which is about as far from a rugby league heartland as, as you could possibly imagine. But you know, like everyone, we had a television, we had BBC, and we, you know, you could you could watch the Challenge Cup and you could watch Great Britain Internationals. And that's sort of how I, I got into it. And, and, you know, I say got into it. And I've, I've sort of drifted in and out of rugby league over the years. So I, I don't consider myself an expert or, or anything remotely close to an expert on the sport. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a passion that has, has been fermented through a television screen, pretty much. So I guess my first memories would be something like, you know, the 95 World Cup, mm-hmm. you know, watching players like Martin fire and Sean Edwards. I, I, I do remember the early days of Super League on, on Sky Sports. Yeah which uh, we we were one of the few houses in our streets that had access to Sky Sports. So, you know, I I remember the early days of Super League as well. So that's basically it. I mean, there was no – I mean, I certainly had no idea where a local club, what sort of local rugby league existed. Obviously, it wasn't available at at school or anything like that. So, so yeah, it was just – it was a TV event.
1: Yep. And I'm curious about the importance of free-to-air television to sports in the U.K., because like I say besides a a few challenge cup games and international matches which are becoming increasingly irregular uh, rugby league is is largely absent from uh, free-to-air tv screens so how important is free-to-air tv or terrestrial tv to sport in the UK I know English cricket has had this conversation since taking the cash to go behind a paywall after the 2005 ashes and there are questions about what that has done to that sport's popularity so what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, it's an an ongoing debate, and and one that I suspect has become slightly less relevant over the years. Mm. Obviously, the audiences that that you can attract through free-to-air television are potentially astronomical, but... Uh, more often, they're they're just they're just larger than, than what you get on satellite TV, and I guess what rugby league and a lot of other sports have had to do is balance the commercial benefits available from pay TV to you know reaching a wider audience through through the BBC, which I think they've they've tried to combine. So Super League has been on Sky ever since its inception, mm. and the Challenge Cup has been on the BBC and. As well as England internationals whenever they come up, so they've definitely tried to, to strike a bit of a balance. And it's becoming slightly less relevant these days, I suppose, with things like streaming and, mm. and YouTube. And kind of we're in an era of where thirty-second, sixty-second video clips are, are all the rage. And I think the debate over free TV is slowly becoming obsolete. We're not quite there yet, but yeah. you know, there's going to come a point where people talk about free access rather than than free-to-air TV.
1: Yeah, yeah, I understand. Now, Jonathan, back to your lived rugby league experience. So after a period where rugby league basically disappeared from your life, your work as a sports columnist essentially reintroduced you to the game, and you seemed to really like what you saw upon that reunion. What was it about the game that you found attractive?
0: Well, I guess from a journalistic point of view, I really liked the way that it seemed to be played by normal guys who were very happy to talk to you, who it seemed were, were kind of desperate to to promote their sport and, and advocate for their sport. Mm. And I suppose at a, at a personal level, I so when I went to secondary school, I had to play rugby union, mm-hmm. which I hated. I wanted to play football. It wasn't a football school. Mm. It was a rugby school. So I had to play rugby union. And I think I'd, I'd always kind of taken against that sport slightly, you know, partly because of that and partly because of, I guess, the identity of it. And even though I'm, I'm from the south of England, kind of, you know, middle-class upbringing, I, I felt like I identified with Rugby League a lot more. And I felt that the, the imbalance in terms of reach and coverage and stature between the two codes mm. didn't make any sense to me. Mm. And, you know, once I, once I joined the, the sports section of the Daily Telegraph and I kind of had a platform to, to promote Rugby League a bit more, I felt like it... You know, as well as being the fun thing to do, mm. it was the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, and I guess we, we've touched it on that previous question, but just to be explicit, are you able to give us a sense of the status or the popularity of rugby league in the UK today? And obviously football's in another stratosphere, but where would you say rugby league sits on the national stage compared to the status or popularity of rugby union in the current day? And do you think the last decade or two has seen rugby league expand in the national consciousness? Has it tread water? Has it receded?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of popularity, it very much depends where you go. It is a regional sport. I mean, people talk about rugby league as a northern sport, but it's actually even more precise than that. Yeah. They talk about the M62 corridor, the M62, you know, is the motorway that goes from from Liverpool to Hull. It's that, it's that little band, which is, is rugby league territory, as well as places like Cumbria, of course. And I mean, in terms of, you know, participation numbers, I guess, you know, what, what you might call footprint. Rugby league, I would say probably sort of eighth or ninth in terms of the sports in this country mm. football, cricket, rugby union, you know, tennis, golf, yep. athletics, cycling would probably all trump rugby league. Mm. But I mean, a big part of that is the gatekeepers to sport. And I, I'm thinking specifically about the media and the media and government. Rugby union is the establishment sport, and rugby league is very much not the establishment sport. So mm. you will always find if you read a, you know a newspaper like The Times or the, or the Telegraph you will always find more rugby union you know sports like rowing and you know hockey those sports will always have precedence because the people who are the gatekeepers to that media are, are more likely to have a, a natural empathy with, with rugby union and in terms of you know how that's changed over time I think rugby leagues kind of flatlined a little bit which, which actually over the last decade or two is, is no mean achievement given that his competitors these days are not. So much football or cricket as, you know, Netflix yeah. or, you know, YouTube, people's free time has, has fractured in a million different directions. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that the sport has been very proactive about promoting itself and, you know, it's been quite shrewd as well about trying to to get itself as much airtime and media coverage as it can mm. has, has helped it to hold its own. Uh, because, you know, there are a lot of sports in this country that have basically just died. Speedway is one, yeah. you know. Uh, horse racing you know could, could easily you know it, it's one of those sports that it's just gone into terminal decline and rugby league could have gone that way and might still go that way but it's just about keeping its head above water for now yeah. which is uh which is an encouraging sign
1: yeah i'm interested to to flesh out what you were saying about the gatekeepers of i don't know the sports press can you flesh that out a bit more is that more about uh what journalism is a, a middle class pursuit and and middle class people prefer other sports, and therefore rugby league doesn't get you know much of a look in for that reason. Is that what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, I mean partly it's an, it's an identity thing. So if say rugby union was was going to the wall, you know, I'm not sure which again it, it might. I mean, all sports have. I Are in mean, like the deep financial crisis at the moment. Mm. It would, I think, it would be more likely to get a hearing in the top echelon of to government. We'll come to, you know, we'll come to the political element of it later. But rugby union matters to more of the powerful people in this country than rugby league, and, and partly it's a it's a commercial thing as well because the revenue that sports and by extension sports coverage can generate is partly determined by the sort of people who watch it. And if the you know the sort of people who go to Twickenham to watch Rugby Union mm. are more likely to invest in private banking or you know a sports car or, or whatever, and and so you're then attracting that sponsorship money. Yeah. The sponsors of, of like England Rugby Union over the last few years, you know, you, it's sort of QBE, it's, it's it's investment companies, it's banking, it's yeah. it's insurance, and you know Rugby League, it's Betfred, it's Heinz yeah. Big Soup. It's bachelors. Yeah. And and that's just a commercial reality. If you're a working class sport, then, you know, there's a perception problem there. And it's quite a lot of the time rooted in in snobbery. Yeah. And without wishing to unpack the whole British class system, which which would probably take most of the year, you know, that's kind of the way it's always been.
1: Yeah. It's interesting, Jonathan, I've been kind of learning about the history of UK Rugby League through guests such as uh, Professor Tony Collins and others. And it's interesting how rugby league has had its ups and downs over the decades. And I think what I've found, and I'd like your thoughts on it, is that rugby union turning professional in the mid-90s, I wonder how that impacted the perception of rugby league for non-rugby leaguers. Because before the mid-90s, even if you you weren't a rugby league person or didn't relate or didn't like the cut of their jib for whatever reason, you still knew deep down rugby league had among the best, if not the best rugby athletes in the Northern Hemisphere or the world. So even if you didn't like the idea of rugby league, you couldn't ignore it on those big occasions like you were saying when you were a kid, like a Challenge Cup final. But when Rugby Union turned pro, the tide turned, rugby league still has incredible athletes, but there's not that distinct gap in intensity or quality or professionalism that there may have once been. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of nailed it. Really, in, in the mid '90s, Bath, who, who were the champion rugby union team, played Wigan Warriors mm. in a kind of a cross-code two-legged challenge, and, and Wigan absolutely wiped the floor with them. It was it was embarrassing how much you know fitter and more and more athletic and, and more skillful they were, and that kind of encapsulated the gap between rugby union and rugby league in, I guess, the '80s and the '90s, pre-professionalism. They were just superior athletes, and obviously they were paid better. or they were paid, so mm. you know, you had this massive exodus of good rugby players from the south of England and, and Wales as well to rugby league, and yeah, the gap closed. And you know, over the decades, professionalism in, in rugby union, I think, has has changed the perception of, and it's not it's not just changed perceptions; it's, it's physically changed yeah. the sport as well. I mean, if you look at a rugby union player, they're built like, yeah, they're, they're just sort of weird, kind of mutant. <laughs> creatures that are like sort of 80% neck. They're, they're barely even recognizable as human because you know, since the age of 12 or 13, they've been mainlining whey protein and, and have been essentially bred like like racehorses for this very purpose. And, and so I, I guess it's almost gone the other way. Whereas you, you might say, like, you know, rugby union players are kind of the superhuman beings these days. Mm. Rugby league players, and you yeah, know, as athletic as they are and, and, and as, as prime physical specimens, are still recognisably humans. Yeah. And and it, it's almost sort of gone the other way, where rugby union had become this there's a lot of talk about concussion and things like that in sport, but in. In union, it's it's almost become a proxy for oh my god, what is this? What is this sport become? What are we turning these people into? These these kind of transformers just colliding into each other.
1: You know, where's where's the skill and where's the finesse and where's yeah. the nuance gone? That's a selling point these days for yeah. uh, rugby league. You know, watch,
0: watch humans play rugby. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm, I'm tempted to call this episode 80% Neck, so uh, I'll see if I can come up with anything better, but that's leading at the moment. Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny, in Australia, State of Origin is one of the most watched TV programs in the country every year, so you're getting five to ten times the audience of a regular game, and, and that's because you're getting people who don't even like rugby league watching those games. They might hate how rugby league players behave, they might think it's too simple a game or, or some other prejudice. But they find it hard to resist something like origin because there's nothing really like it. And I guess rugby league in the UK doesn't have that point of difference anymore now that rugby union is fully professional, has more money and can pay for the best players and, and breed them <laughs> into uh, 80% neck. And, and because obviously rugby league doesn't have something like state of origin as well. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, they
0: they'll talk about bringing back the Roses game, you know, mm. Lancashire Yorkshire trying to turn that into a UK origin. I, I don't know. I don't know whether that would work. I don't know what you think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they tried that um, once or twice in the past. And, I mean, it's the sort of thing that you need to stick with uh, and give it a few years. I mean, State of Origin, even after the first year or two, people weren't really taking it too seriously. So it took a couple of years to, to really get going and get momentum behind it, especially in New South Wales. So I think it's definitely worth a shot and it's, you know, Definitely in in this day and age with emphasis on identity and local identity it's not the worst idea. Now Jonathan, how much is class and geography synonymous with rugby league in the UK? So away from those rugby league strongholds on the M62 and in Cumbria can it be viewed as a sport in its own right or is it always seen through the lens of of class and place?
0: It is heavily tied to class and place but more so among people who don't really follow it and don't like it and don't know very much about the sport mm. i mean if you took a cross section of like my london friends they would say oh well it's something they play in the north it's something working class people play in the north yeah. whereas you know if you are involved in the game you you know you'll know that there's actually a much broader cross section than a lot of people would think so you know, it will always have that kind of perception of being tied to the m62 corridor being tied to certain towns but it has always been a little bit more complex than that. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, there was a pretty strong London team, London Broncos. You know, there are geographically there are places like Coventry, Milton Keynes. You know, have have pretty decent teams, and I think the class thing, the class thing is is more interesting because. <laughs> We don't really know what class is anymore. It's, it's a concept that has a lot of power and resonance, but nobody really knows how to define it anymore. If you're kind of a self-made millionaire who kind of grew up in a, in a brick terrorist house, Uh, that person will probably still call themselves working class Mm. whereas you know if you had a a middle class upbringing but you know you're you're earning sort of 15 grand working in a coffee shop or whatever you know you probably wouldn't be considered working class it's a very poorly defined concept these days and and one that doesn't really pertain to to the reality of life in this country and yet it is still such a powerful indicator and you know I, i think yeah rugby league falls into that Gap a little bit, and, and essentially, if, if you don't want to take any notice of it, then you've got plenty of reasons not not to, and and that, that's going to be one of them.
1: Yeah, and it's very interesting what what you say there, and how class is very hard to define these days. Or what is working class? What is middle class? So I'm curious on your opinion, despite that fact, on how rigid class structures are in the UK, whatever they are. If you're a sport like rugby league that is synonymous with a certain section of society, the northern working class you know, people that traditionally perhaps haven't had the power and influence in society. Is it possible to be socially mobile as a sport or do the seemingly rigid social structures make that incredibly difficult? Because as you say, people in the southern half of the UK, no rugby league exists, but they basically give it zero consideration. It's not their game, it's someone else's. And as you've written, and it's very interesting when you've told colleagues and friends of your fondness for rugby league, they see it as a quaint affectation. And I've come across probably hundreds of UK expats in Sydney through work and things, mostly, mostly out of London and surrounds, I guess. And when I ask them if they follow a rugby league team, they look at me as if to say, and why, and why would I do that? It, it literally never, ever crossed their mind. It's not that they're necessarily condescending towards it, but it's just a bizarre concept that they would have any consideration to follow the game.
0: Yeah, these things are so closely tied to identity and mm. so little to to the actual sport itself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, about you know, about five or six years ago, may, maybe less than that, they brought the England team to the Olympic Stadium, what's now the London Stadium mm-hmm. in East London. It was an England New Zealand international. They, they played the series, you know, one of the games there, and I think about forty or fifty thousand people turned up. Mm. They got they got an enormous crowd, including you know some friends of mine who you know were from the south and had never even. Thought about going to a rugby league game before, Mm. but it was an event because it was happening kind of in their backyard, and it was the same, I guess, to us to a certain extent with the 2013 World Cup at Wembley that managed to get cut through because it was a big event taking place in London and these are people who absolutely would not identify with a rugby league team or you know with Super League as a product partly for reasons of identity but if you bring the game to them and present it well and you market it well then it it can cut through geographical and and class boundaries and the other example I'd mention is darts Mm -hmm. which has got this incredible it's managed to to transcend class and geographical boundaries in an incredible way since Know, the, sort of the satellite TV revolution over the last 20, 25 years. Right. You know, when they had fans at Alexandra Palace, you would have working class fans who've probably, you know, been priced out of things like football, rubbing shoulders with the likes of Prince Harry and, and Zara Phillips mm. and the royal family. And I think that shows that is, I guess what you call social mobility as a sport is possible, and as long as your product—you know—to use that horrible word—as long as your product can can rise or fall on its on its own merits and, and has a chance of reaching out to a broader market, then you know, to a certain extent, it can stand or fall on its own merits. Yeah. But of course, you know, the the, the big question is—is is actually reaching that market and getting getting those opportunities to cut through
1: so Jonathan do you think something like the Rugby League World Cup 2021 which you know Rugby League fans are really excited about do you think that could have some cut through and penetrate the national consciousness is are you getting a sense that uh, you know things are percolating in the sports offices of, of the UK dailies I
0: don't think I, I think it will I think it will definitely cut through but it the, the thing about this is probably the same everywhere, but
2: yeah.
0: it's absolutely not percolating now. I mean, yeah. people don't even care about the Olympics yet. Yeah, people yeah, don't care yeah. about the Olympics in this country until there's about a week to go. And it'll, I think, they're the same with the Rugby League World Cup. But if you pitch it forward, we're now facing what well, year a 2021 football, possibly without crowds, or mm. at, at the very least, a, a very watered down event, the possible cancellation of the Olympics, or, or maybe, you know, that takes place without crowds. And Wimbledon, I think, will be on again potentially without crowds Mm. it is entirely possible that you know it won't be until October November that and in a sporting sense we're able to get back to anything remotely close to normal and so the Rugby League World Cup in the autumn could actually be the first Real, proper, normal feeling sporting event to take place in this country—the big, the first big sporting event, Mm -hmm. anyway—and I think that's what the organisers are are envisaging. That it could be—you know—if you market it right, and if you position it right, and if certain circumstances come to pass, it could absolutely be almost a kind of a homecoming, a a celebratory return to sport. And if you allow that to resonate with people, and and. if you could ride that that wave of of optimism and euphoria that that people are going to have, at the idea of having live sport back again in in something like its previous form, then it could be absolutely enormous. But, you know, that's contingent on so many things.
1: Yeah, yeah. It would be interesting to see what would happen if the the Cards fell rugby league's (laughs) way. Is the Rugby League World Cup, is that an event that, I don't know, the Guardian and and other national news organisations would realistically give significant resources to? I think so, yeah. I mean, especially if for various reasons
0: we're not able to send journalists abroad mm. or there are still restrictions on that. Having a, a home event that you know, we can cover, you know, live from grounds and stadiums yeah. as you know, as a, a big set piece event. That's the sort of thing that newspapers and media organisations they will throw resources at. I mean, even the last World Cup eight years ago, when I was working at the Telegraph, Again, not a traditional rugby league paper, but it, it was, you know, on the eve of the the opening game, you know, Steve McNamara was on the front page of oh, wow. the of the Telegraph sports section, yeah. and uh, speaking to to people in the game, they couldn't remember the last time it happened. You know, we're an event loving people. If you make the bang big enough, we will look at it, yeah. and I don't think you're going you'll to see too many signs of it in the build up. Mm. But once the thing kicks off, if it generates a sort of momentum then, you know, it is going to generate a lot of coverage as well.
1: Yeah, and I guess being on the BBC as well, it could really generate that momentum and, and really get going by the second half of the tournament, hopefully. Now, Jonathan, I'm going to go back to identity and class, if that's okay. And I hate to bring up Brexit, because I'm guessing you and 60 million country women and men are, are done talking about it, but, but here I go. I, I guess what most people would agree with is that it has resulted at least in the short term, in a more divided country, and that divide has manifested somewhat along class and geographic lines. So, does that potentially add to a perception issue for rugby league, particularly for those in the in the southern half of the country?
0: I, th- I think possibly yes. You know, Brexit is often seen as as kind of a north south divide. It, it, you know, it's seen as having divided the country mm. along north south. You know, working class, middle class lines, which is is, is actually so far from the truth. Yeah. It's towns like Liverpool and, and Newcastle and, and Manchester voted to, to remain, and, and huge parts of, of Surrey and, and the South West and you know Southampton and places like that voted, voted to leave. It's 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 absolutely not as simple as that. Yeah. But it has, I think, widened the gulf in perception between what you might call metropolitan citizens and those who who kind of live in small small towns Mm. in the regions
1: which is rugby league's heartland of course
0: which is is, yeah it's rugby league's heartland rugby league is fundamentally it's it's a a sport of towns rather than a sport of cities and there was a a a big conversation in the Labour Party uh, ahead of the kind of leadership their most recent leadership election about left behind towns Mm. and that Labour has become uh, the sort of party that, that is, is catering to, to get I guess you know students and young people and and the professional classes who live in cities and mostly London, mm. and it's kind of left behind the people that you know that, that live in small towns, possibly older people or you know people who aren't you know mobile like the younger generation. Mm. And you know ahead of the last election, the Conservative Party identified what they called Workington Man
2: mm. as a,
0: a key demographic for them to target, and that is I guess somebody aged from. 35, 40 upwards, living in yeah, towns like Workington, mm. or Sale, or Kendall or, or or Hull, as as part of their strategy to to win over the north of England, and and they did obviously extremely well. They absolutely swept through a lot of what used to be considered Labour heartlands, mm. and rugby league was was a <laughs> I, mean, I wouldn't say it was a huge part of that strategy, but it was a very emblematic part of that strategy. This mm. idea that rugby league towns and rugby league fans who would have described themselves as working-class voters all their lives, you know, now identify, certainly not with the Labour Party and, you know, very possibly with Conservative politics. Mm. And so, you yeah, know, that is a divide that has been that, I guess that, that's a perception that has been directly generated by or, or directly fueled by the, the Brexit vote. I mean, the, the trends, the long-term trends have been going on for decades. Yeah. And, I know, yeah, I, I suppose there is that kind of perception divide. We do live in, a, in an increasingly divided country and... If your perception is that, you know, I mean, another example is there's been a, a huge debate in, within the game over over Black Lives Matter mm. over the last few months. You know, there's been quite a lot of resistance to it from a lot of fans, from pockets of the game, yeah. and you know, those are the sorts of conversations that I think, I guess, epitomise the new fault lines of the sport and, and the country as a whole, where the old tribal allegiances no longer necessarily apply. Yeah. And I think you know, the sport has a I wouldn't say a problem because it, you know, it's, it's a problem for everyone. It's not specifically a rugby league problem, but as a country and as a country, we don't really know where we're going. We don't really know what we want to be, and we don't really have any kind of, you know, unifying idea that we can really rally behind anymore. It's it's a faithfully divided country, I think. And I don't. I wonder if rugby league kind of epitomises this. That this is now a sport. That I guess it may not have been the most popular sport. It may not have been a richest sport, but it knew who it was mm. and it knew what it stood for. And like the rest of us, it's probably now wondering whether that's still the case.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And it's interesting what you say there where it seems rugby league is really on the front line of the culture wars. And it's actually, it's interesting to think of the parallels with Australia as well, because the Rugby League vote is actually kind of a big deal in Australian politics as well. We have a Prime Minister, he talks up his love of the Sharkies, uh, even though he, he wasn't really a Rugby League fan until he entered Parliament. Uh, we have an opposition leader who's, who's been a long-time Rugby League fan and, you know, he's not afraid to sort of talk about his passion for South Sydney as well. So the Rugby League vote in Australia is very relevant and it sounds like it's it's very relevant in the UK as well. Does, does it skew
0: one way or the other? I mean, has it traditionally been aligned to, to, you know, one wing of the political spectrum?
1: Well, it's actually very similar to the UK. So rugby league is traditionally a, a labour sport, really a Catholic labour sport, but similar with identity issues, um, conservative politicians appealing to, you know, the working class, I, I guess, and with various policies. That has attracted the, a certain demographic, and I would say... The, the Rugby League vote is, is more split than it once was. It probably still leans towards Labour and left-wing side of things, but not as much as it once would have. And it's, it's probably split pretty close down the middle, but, I mean, I don't have the stats on that. But, yeah, I think it's a, a similar situation as what's happened in the UK.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting because it is very similar to the UK. When Rugby League was one of the sports that basically sent a, an SOS to the government in about April or May, say, like, we are go to run out of money, It was pretty much the first sport that got a bailout package from the government. And that's because it used its, I I don't know, I guess its political leverage Mm. to say to the government, look, these are your new voters. If you let Rugby League die in, you know, Castleford or Wakefield or or Huddersfield or whatever. Mm. It's on you. Yeah, it's on on you. And these people, these are the voters that you're trying to keep. And I'm pretty sure that had a a huge bearing on the fact that the government pretty much expedited and rushed through a, a comprehensive bailout package for, for rugby league in this country.
1: Mm. Yeah that, that's very interesting. Um, now Jonathan we are running out of time so I'll get to a question I know a lot of listeners have been waiting for and it's a simple one. In your opinion what can rugby league do to improve its lot in the UK?
0: Well <laughs> it's a $64,000 question possibly worth you know a lot more than that besides. I mean we've touched on, on a lot of the various aspects the various strands of this question you know over the course of this, this conversation mm. I think rugby league is, is never going to be a mainstream sport in this country mm. it's, I think uh, you know, and it's, it's very possible that nothing is going to be a mainstream sport in this country in 20 years time, things are fracturing that much, our, you know, the way that we can personalise our own uh, free time and, and entertainment experiences these days makes it very unlikely that we're ever going to unite as a nation around something like football or even a TV show, in the way that you know we did when there was only three or four channels yeah. on the telly. And I, I think that's that's the first thing that all sports need to to get around. We are not going to be a great unifying sport force in this. Country. We're not going to be massive. We're not going to be as big as the Beatles. Mm. What we can do create a sustainable sport that generates revenue, that looks after its own, that that nurtures its grassroots, that keeps a, a supply of talent. And spectators and sponsors coming through the door. And and I guess the way you do that is is partly through good governance. It's it's partly through making sure that your structure caters to the bottom as well as the top, mm. that you're not simply funneling money into the elite side of the game and that you're not funneling money upwards and, and trying to create this ever more spectacular product at the, at the top end while neglecting what's happening at the bottom which i think is, a, is a, a mistake that women's football is making for example yeah. and when you have the opportunity to cut through when you have big events like a world cup or say you know a, a grand final when you have those few opportunities to cut through to the non-fans the apathetic possibly even lapsed fans because you know they're, they're a huge constituent people like me who maybe watched the sport once, but then drifted out of it for a while. Mm. You really have to seize those opportunities because you're not going to be part of the national conversation all year round. That's something that sports like cricket and golf and horse racing and, you know, even rugby union are beginning to discover, you know, there are going to be times when people just don't care. But the times when people could potentially care, that's when you have to seize the initiative. And I think they get a lot of things right in this country. I mean, I'm not intimate with the you know the kind of the internecine politics and governance of rugby league in this country and you know i, I know that there's a lot of issues between you know super league and, and the rfl and, and what have you mm. but as a sport you know the, the people working in the sport generally all, all got the same thing which is they know that you can't simply go chasing the broader audience Without neglecting the people that are, that are stuck with you through thick and thin, and, and vice versa, yeah. and it's always a tough balance to strike. And you know, the-
1: just on that, in terms of the, that balance between your heartland and reaching out for new audiences, do you have an opinion on you know the idea of big cities with big town teams make a difference for the Super League and, and to sort of the, the footprint? You know, London Broncos has been around for a long time, and I guess it hasn't really worked in that regard. They tried Toronto, that kind of made a splash, but it didn't work for, for various reasons. Could that be a thing, or is that just um, not really gonna gonna work? If
0: it if it feels as sad, if it feels like it's if, you know, people aren't on idiots. You know, if something's something's been done for, for commercial reasons, if something's been done for nakedly commercial reasons and doesn't carry that, that rig of authenticity to it, then, then people aren't gonna go for it. Yeah. I think authenticity is is a huge selling point to rugby league. People know that these institutions have been around for centuries and you know, it's, it's not traditionalist to sort of have some kind of affinity with the idea of Wigan or mm. Hull KR or Castleford, you know, or St. Helens. These institutions still resonate, and you know, you don't even like a marketing expert would say, you know, you don't chuck these kind of identities out of the door, you don't chuck that authenticity out of the window mm. without a pretty good idea of what you're going to replace it with. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you you have a Manchester team and, and Salford Salford Red Devils I guess try to become the de facto Manchester team. Mm. If Manchester as a city doesn't have a kind of a rugby league consciousness, then any attempt to kind of force one onto you know, this extremely complex and diverse city is, I think, going to be doomed to failure. I mean, you saw when, when Super League was established in the 90s, mm. there were all sorts of, you know, plans to merge different teams. You know, they, they would have a, I think, I think they wanted to merge, have a, a unified Cumbrian team. Mm. That's just not how, sport, mm. it's not how sport works, certainly in this country. Mm. It's not how fandom works. It's not how, how identity works. And I think, you know, you, you sweep away the well-established tribal identities of, of rugby league at your peril, I think.
1: And just quickly, do you think the, the summer competition adds value for Super League? I, I understand this debate was run one years ago and I know the idea of a summer season is that there's more free air for rugby league, but, but does it actually play out that way or, or should football codes just run their best race regardless of what anyone else does?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a 90s argument really, this idea that, you know, you play in the summer, you have more time not being taken up by football because if you look at football football is a 12-month sport these days or wherever you go in the calendar you're competing with football you're competing with something personally speaking i don't really take much notice of rugby league at all in the summer there's just far too much either there's a world cup or a euros or an olympics or there's there's cricket which is my other main sport there's there's wimbledon there's the golf and i feel like the summer is is more crowded Mm. these days than the winter whereas you know if you get to november or december is what Dart has done so well. Dart kind of crams itself into the autumn and winter months when people are staying at home, when it's cold, and people are in front of their tellies And you know, it's a Thursday night. What are you going to do? You need to watch something. And and if if there's a good Super League match on, people will watch it. I've just I've just talked myself into going back to a winter sport, but (laughs) I think that's I don't think it's a bad idea actually.
1: Well, I'm I'm kind of with you there, but but like I say, I know this conversation has probably been had many times decades ago but i think of the the natural cycle of the football codes particularly in australia i guess and and the season starts and ends in warmer brighter weather and there's an optimism that that comes with that and i think that's it's actually quite something quite powerful in how you start and finish and the the, how the surrounding environment plays a role there so it's probably something you can't measure but you give that up like rugby league has done in the uk you know, it's starting when it's really cold and it's ending when it's getting really cold. And I don't know, you wonder if it could be better being a winter sport again. But who knows? Who knows? Before we finish up, Jonathan, you have a, a Netflix TV series, I understand, premiering this year. Is that something you can give us a sneak peek into or am I, am I jumping the gun here? I, um, I'm not allowed to
0: speak about it at the moment, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but it, it is a thing. It's, it's a thing. It's, uh, it, it's, it is true
1: you can say that it's a thing that is true. That's good news. That's all I wanted. All right. Awesome, Jonathan. We are officially out of time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good luck to you and your country people for a positive 2021. And we look forward to your continued high-quality output in The Guardian and elsewhere, hopefully with a decided rugby league twist at times too. So, Jonathan Liu, thanks so much for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thank
0: you very much for having me.
1: Progressive rugby league. A really good guy, always enjoyed Jonathan's writing, no matter the topic. Alright, let's call it a day. You've got things to do, I've got things to do. I've got to find a pump for my Parramatta Eels Brandon Steed in rugby league football. It's true. Anyway, leave that with me. Friends, it's been a pleasure as always to be in your company. I wish you and yours a vibrant, funny, and happy 2021. Until we next meet, Rugby League Hobby, and see ya.